Welcome to We Sing the Bass Electric, a podcast for bass lovers and music enthusiasts of all genres. Join us as we revisit some of the most iconic recordings from different bassists, past and present, discussing behind-the-scene insight and stories that made up some of the most revered albums of our time, all from a bass player's point of view. Now here's your host, international recording artist, Mr. Christian Day Masonis, a.k.a. Big New York. In today's podcast of We Sing the Bass Electric, I've invited a few friends to chat about their memory of Tim Bogert, bassist extraordinaire, who sadly left us in the beginning of 2021. From time to time, I plan to release tribute episodes on some of the bass players whom I believe have altered or added something to the development of the bass guitar and whose legacy should not be forgotten. Joining me is Will Lee, Adam Nitty, and Steve Anderson, who at the time was the person responsible for bringing Tim to hold his very first clinic back in 1980 at Bass Institute of Technology, now known as Musicians Institute. I hope you enjoy this broadcast and please share your feedback via Facebook, YouTube, or email at wesingthebasselectric at gmail.com. And don't forget to add us to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to We Sing the Bass Electric. Thank you so much in advance. This episode was recorded on January 31st, 2021. You know, that legacy of that hard-hitting finger-style plucking style that Tim Bogert had and uh, Jack Bruce and Donald Duck Dunn, and I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting other people, Geezer Butler, but I mean, you know, that's kind of what, you know, what brought me uh, to bring all you guys together is to talk a little bit about legacy, talk about how important it is to have a mentor in our lives and also how important it is. Sometimes we forget, we just do this music thing because we're possessed. Um, we can't quit, we can't give it up. We'd like to sometimes, but we can't, it's in our DNA. But, you know, leaving an imprint is, a serious thing, you know, and Tim Bogart definitely left an imprint. So uh, Leland's not here, so we're gonna we're gonna start. I would like Steve Anderson to to start uh, bringing in the very first story about Tim Bogart. Um, I guess I met Tim in 1980, but Steve actually has the backstory of how Tim Bogart came to Base Institute of Technology. And you guys are all familiar with Base Institute of Technology, right? You guys all know about it, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Steve, take us away. Okay. So uh, the days, you know, the, uh, by the way, I want to say based on the haircut, my inspiration for my haircut all along has been Bob Ross and uh, <laughs> from PBS show. And I followed him, you know, his untimely death. And, uh, but I just want to say that the fro at the time was definitely inspired by that. And, uh, uh, but that's another story. So anyway, 1980, uh, I was uh, teaching at uh, uh, the Bay School uh, Musicians Institute, and uh, I was writing all the curriculum there at the time, me and uh, Chuck Rainey. And uh, we had many, many, many talks in the middle of the night about what we were going to do, because uh, even though I'm a big believer because of all the classical stuff and all kinds of just crazy stuff, that uh, a harmony theory drives uh uh, drives idioms basically it all to me it all kind of comes back to harmony theory 
that we wanted to write a curriculum that balanced that, which is pretty serious, with just good old fashioned fun and rock and roll and what we just use to motivate, you know, our butts. And you think of it, the head, the heart, and the butt. And so a lot of it went into the fact that we wanted to write a course that, and we did, that uh, would bring in some people who were really, really uh, influential uh, slightly before in the late 60s and also um, were still uh, affecting uh, music in terms of rock and roll. And it's, it's, I don't want to put it in a genre, but had a huge effect. And so he said, just come up with some people. Uh, of course, you think of bass players, obviously you think of uh, uh, McCartney, you think of uh, uh, obviously Tim Bogert, and you think of a bunch of people that uh, I'm thinking uh, the who as well, people that really who affected you. And I, you know, I shared with uh, Chuck that when I was growing up, I started playing bass. I started playing about 10. I think I played both. I went to a crazy school where you had to have a major. So I was playing both double bass classical, jazz, and electric at the same time. Luckily, I was taller, so I was able to play a three-quarter and also a regular 34-inch electric. So uh, he said, what affected you? And I, I told him that when I was 10 or 11, I wasn't really into pop music much. I was into R&B. You know, I was listening. My mom was a huge, big R&B fan, and that's all. We listened to classical music and R&B around the house, not a lot of pop music. My brother, who a year older than me, uh, was more of a pop music guy. And so I started listening to what he did. Obviously, uh, Beatles, um, Sgt. Pepper was a huge change in my life. I heard that and it was immediate. I sort of like the Stones, etc. But then when I heard Vanilla Fudge, which was 67, 68, that was huge for me. And I kept that in the back of my head all those years. So with reference to the course, I thought, who can I bring over that really has more of kind of an eclectic style because I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I really think of Tim as being a rock player. He was a rock and roll player, but he was all, there was a lot of R&B in his playing too. And I thought he's perfect to bring into this course. The course was designed that we'd play a couple of, we'd think about who we liked for a couple of weeks. And then on the third week, I'd surprise you by bringing somebody in. Okay. And I was able to do that with a whole bunch of players, but uh, I knew through a friend of mine that uh, Tim lived uh, or was living at the time or hanging out at the time in North Hollywood. So I was able to get him on the phone and say, would you like to come in to the base school and do like a, uh, a small, uh, you know, class for the base players? His immediate reaction was, no, I'm not doing it. No way I'm doing it. Did he ever do any uh, instruction type stuff? Not before. Was he one of those kind of guys? He did, he did not. He said, I don't like it. I'm intimidated by it. I don't want to really kind of do it. I'm not sure school is where I want to walk into. So he said, uh, why don't I come over and take you out to lunch? And so he said, okay, gave me his address. I wanted to talk to him in person because that's usually the best way to, you know, face-to-face, eye-to-eye to really make your pitch. So he gave me his address. And ironically, I don't know if anybody else knows this, but ironically, the little apartment he was living on in North Hollywood, Beck Avenue, yeah, it was living on Beck Avenue. Got to his apartment and knocked on the door. Uh, Tim wasn't a, a great uh, housekeeping guy with his apartment. Let's just put it that way. I said, you know, I'm saying like, can't you at least like straighten up a little bit? Come on over. He kind of looked at me. He's a New Yorker, right? So he thought, he said, he said, what are we talking about here? Sit down, give me your pitch. I did. 
I said, they will be nice to you. They won't uh, try to pick your brain and talk to you about uh, theory, form and analysis. They won't uh, test your counterpoint skills and all that kind of stuff. He said, well, maybe. So I said, think about it. You don't know any of this, do you, Christian? Because this is the backstory. So I said, you got to come. I wasn't sure he was going to be there. So I lined up a couple of players to be there. I believe the first time he came in, it was me and uh, David Logeman, who you might know as a drummer from uh, uh, from Frank Zappa and all that stuff they did, but was a, rock, a guy I grew up with when I was 13, 14 years old. Brought t I brought uh, David in. I forget he was playing guitar. It might have been Don Mock. Or it might have been that new guy who was just starting out that I thought was good, Scott Henderson, who had just started playing there. And I thought, well, we'll have him because, uh, you know, I just had a feeling that, you know, this was good. So whoever it was, he came in, uh, as you remember, the first time sort of sat up. We had to get a little dumb uh, amp for him to play. We didn't know what we were going to do. Everybody's about 30 of us. It wasn't a performance class. It wasn't a big thing. I thought that would be smart to bring him into our bass class first and just have him play. So we already knew, uh, we made it uh, know that we were gonna learn some of the tunes, like, I don't know, some of this stuff, like obviously anybody can play Superstition. So we knew that. I think it was like, uh, I don't know, uh, a Lady or Shotgun or a couple of things like that that he could play. So he, uh, I could tell when we started playing this stuff, he just turned around and looked at me that he was having better than a good time, which is a positive thing. We just made it really loose, just play, just talk about what he thinks about when he's playing, when he's trying to write a tune, come up with a bass line. And I think it made it really clear that where his roots were, sort of that uh, rock kind of uh, thing, sort of R&B thing. And so that's how we ended up at Musicians Institute. We took him out to lunch after, and he said, I've had the most fun I've had uh, you know, in a long time. So that proves something that you get somebody in there face-to-face, -face, you put them there, there's no pressure, you have some fun, you just make some music. And so it was 180 degrees the other way. Instead of saying, no, I don't want it, he was saying, I love doing this and I will come back. So that's the quick five minute backstory of how uh, Tim ended up uh, for the first time in a class at Musicians Institute. Well, uh, I'd like to ask you a question about that um, since you just gave me, gave me some insight of the backstory. Did you also have anything to do with bringing Lewis Johnson and Abraham Laboriel and uh, Ray Brown, which are the ones who, who really stuck out as far as me, as my memory, because yeah, I, I, was, I was 18 years old and I was, I, you know what, Will, I didn't know, the, you know, I didn't know the name of any of these, some of these people. Yeah. Because when I came to the school, I was a rocker. You know, I was playing Judas Priest and Scorpions and and Aerosmith. And right. I, you know, even though I love Jocko and, and I love Stanley Clark and all that, but um, I appreciate that, that, that you shared that story, that backstory. Well, there um, were two two camps at, at Emma when I came. The two camps basically were the three camps, rock and roll, fusion, which was huge, and uh, uh, just planet, just uh, bebop. And so I knew what was happening there because as you remember, I don't know if you got in, I was playing in uh, Jody Orio's little uh, bebop uh, class all the time. And I would sort of poke Joe and say, you know, dude, it's a little bit more. I mean, I love bebop, but there's, we just got to start to, we can't be sitting in camps and say, I hate, uh, you know, jo uh, Jody Orio's thing was, 
if you bring your boat paddle to this class, I won't let you in. And so that meant guys would say, does that mean we all have to buy arch tops? And uh, so he said, I'm not happy with the boat paddles. Anyway, this is an idea of the, of the thing. So there were three camps there. And I thought if I can bring in five or six guys that will shake things up and take you out of your comfort zone, then I will. And so, yeah, the answer to your question is, Tim was the first one. I also contacted Abel Boreal, who I know knew really well. Uh, I contacted Lewis Johnson because I thought we had to start approaching that kind of technique. I also brought in a guy who you might not know very well, uh, I, uh, who was doing a lot of, uh, a guy named Lenny Bro, who was doing a lot of hammer on things to come in and talk about some techniques. And uh, I wanted to bring folks in physically that were changing uh, uh, base kind of at the time. And my twist on it was I wanted to bring guys on who were kind of fronting groups who were up front. Obviously, Tim Bogert, a lot of bass players standing at the back of the stage. I don't know about you, but I didn't like that much. Mm -hmm. So I brought those guys in. I also had uh, Jocko, who was a good friend of mine in my back pocket, who I was, who eventually showed up. Do you know that? I'll tell you that story sometime. That was okay. a wild story. This sounds yeah. like a Miami connection to me. Yeah, well, I, you know how I got yeah. that happening. I knew Joe really well. Jody always my friend. I talked about the fact that I knew Jocko a little bit, but I didn't know whether he'd walk in. I didn't know, honestly, God rest his soul. I didn't know what kind of condition he might be in or what he would show up, et cetera. So, and you know, Jody Oria, Joe said, well, you know, I know Jocko really well from the Florida ties, right? And I said, I know that. He says, I will take care of this. I will handle, I will handle the whole thing. So I thought, good. But anyway, to, to rewind a bit, uh, there were, so I got all those people in line. Three weeks, a new guy came in, Lewis Johnson. I wanted people to see how that could affect it, how the technique could affect. I also had Abel Boreal because it was a completely different kind of thing. He was more or less fronting. If you ever saw Coin O'Neill down at the uh, baked potato, he would really more or less front that thing. And I wanted people to realize, the bass players, that there's no uh, restrictions, there's no uh, end of possibilities, that you can be out in front, you can run a band, uh, Will knows about it. You can run a band like this and have it be successful. You can put yourself up front. And we, st we start to need to move in that direction. So that's why all those guys were in there. I also had you probably a guy that I got to say, two guys said yes, that they would come in. Jack Bruce said yes, he would come in, but we never could actually get him in there in place. So that was a disappointment. I also got Glenn Hughes to say he would just come in and just play with us. And for some reason, he had to cancel that last day. But at least I got six or seven. Glenn was another one like Tim. I wanted him to say, you can stand up in front of the stage. You can front the band. You can sing and play. You can write music. You can have several different kinds of styles. Uh, and it would all be good. But that's as far as I got were those six, I think, five or six. So that's it's a long-winded way to answer your question. But yeah, those guys are all on my list. That's history. Now, uh, Will... And then Adam, um, do you have any stories about Tim, whether you knew him personally or whether it was a piece of music that he recorded or a live performance that that uh, moved you in any way? Well, well you, you know, first. Okay, right. when, you know, when Vanilla Fudge first came out, which is probably where most people on the planet heard heard Tim, um, it was it was fascinating to listen to. Right, Tim had this. Uh, he seemed to have this style of like solidity mixed with anything goes. 
You know what I mean? Like he's got a, he had the groove thing, but he was just about to take off at any minute. In fact, I, I once heard Carmine a piece say like he was a guy who had the ability to just to just lay it down and then have it go somewhere and take off. And sometimes he wouldn't come back, he said. <laughs> but whatever, whatever was happening, it was all extremely, in my opinion, like one of the more musical versions of that. You had Jack Bruce, you had like Jack Cassidy that would that would kind of be busy players, you know, take the groove and then go somewhere with it kind of thing. But somehow Tim just kept, he kept my ear uh, perked up wanting to hear where this journey was going to take me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we, we had this band called Dreams when I first moved to New York. The reason I'm, I'm, I moved from Miami, which is where I had seen Jocko and Jody Oreo play together with Ira Sullivan's band. <clears throat> I think Steve Bagby on drums. Um, that was the first time I'd seen Jocko was down there. Um, came up to, to do Dreams and we were on this tour and we were opening for Cactus. And that was one of the many, one of the multiple uh, Carmine Apiece, Tim Bogert uh, based rhythm sections that were, you know, it was of course great, the great Beck Bogert Apiece, that, that trio was unbelievable too. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you listen to some of that live stuff. There's a Live in Japan album that those guys have that's just like, <clears throat> you start listening to Tim, you, you may not come back, you know? <laughs> You may take that trip with them and also not return. But it was just the playing was so fascinating and so wild. And I used to love watching Vanilla Fudge because when I first, you know, you heard him. And then and then you, you didn't see him for a minute. But then they got on the Ed Sullivan show and they'd be like, <clears throat> set me free, why don't you pay? And all that, that boogaloo would happen. That he that he he based some of his stuff on, right? And it would make your whole body, the whole band was like flailing all over the place. And he was like a great flailer. And speaking of front men, I mean, these guys will capture your attention when you see it happening. You know, it was already sounding great, but then when you watched it, it was like a whole nother thing. So he was a real captivating, you know, a lot of cats will play super busy, but they'll just stand in the back or the whatever. But like Steve was saying, you got the the front men type guys who were willing to just put on a show for you. And that's what, that's what I loved about Tim. I loved his, his energy. It was just spectacular. And he was kind of a wizard type of a guy too. He wasn't like his bandmates called him Spock. Cause he could, cause he could sort of expound on any topic, you know, cats were like, they were limited in there. They were like listening, you know, fudge guys were like should we play more like the rascals or like less like the rascals that was kind of their scope you know mm. but tim was like you know they'd ask him a, a question about politics the the war that was going on at the time science whatever and tim would have something to say because he was a true scientist of the groove and just life you know cool how come a guy like you chris christian you have these roots of these guys. You mentioned Geezer Butler and, and all these guys. And when I hear you play, it lets it lets me know that when you when you really latch onto anything that 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 sparks your passion, you can become a Christian. De Masones. You can become <laughs> like because your your thing is a total departure to me, even though I'm sure that stuff is informing you. When I hear your own music, 
you've taken that stuff and just multiplied it by 90 and now you've got your thing which is really that's a lesson for us all really at the heart of what we do is some initial real inspirational spark kind of thing well uh you know you just gave you just gave me words of 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 hope and wisdom and uh i i'm pretty touched by that remark of yours, Will. I appreciate it. Um, I can't explain to you how that happened to me, but- It's fascinating, um, it's cool though, but, right? But I could tell you, Will, that I did give up on music. Um, I, I played in a heavy metal band that was supposed to be signed to RCA in 1987. We were uh, hit in, at uh, the Brooklyn heavy metal capital of the world, Lemoore's, and we you know, played with, and opened up for all of these bands that I admired, Twisted Sister and White Lion and Manowar and all of that stuff back then. And um, so you had a band, front row seat, right? I had a front row seat. I was part of that that moment in history, in heavy metal history. And um, when the band didn't get its record contract, it was given to another band called Trickster that went on to be a hair band of MTV in 1980s. Um, I was heartbroken and all the band members couldn't look at each other anymore. And we just completely dissolved. And I tried to get a real job. I, I worked in at Sound One, uh, on, you know, the Brill Building. On, on, you know, I drove a taxi. I did everything I could except play music because I was so heartbroken. And eventually I found myself miserable. I just couldn't go on. I had to play music somehow, somewhere. And uh, I think it was me leaving New York that saved my life, to be honest with you, because in New York City, it's a hard world. It's a fast paced world. As you could remember, so many of us were doing gigs back then in the city. Some of us would get, I was getting paid like $75 to do a show on, you know, on Bleecker Street or whatever. I mean, that that's crappy money. It wasn't real money for me, you know. <laughs> and, I can't uh, get that now on Bleecker Street. <laughs> $75. I was just going to say, that's my, that's my day rate, man. What are you talking about? An Osnoy gig, like, those Osnoy Mondays we did like for 17 years in a row, every Monday with Osnoy Trio and usually Anton Fig. You know, we'd be lucky if we got 50 bucks. I couldn't deal with that lifestyle, man. I just, it was yeah. too much for me. You, I had, we don't all had, live with our parents, so yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. You oh, man, I... I moved out. I moved out of mama's house a long time ago, man. I yeah. have a new mama now, Will. I don't know if you know. I have a new mama. <laughs> All right. I hope now you do. <laughs> okay, Adam. Uh, what's your take on Tim? Do you have any uh, any memories, any influences by him? Or man, I you know with with Tim, it, it's funny because like with respect to my upbringing and my career, it's kind of like I was an early bloomer and a late bloomer. And what I mean by that is, is when I first started playing the bass, um, the, it, it, it wasn't the, the bass playing of, of Tim that I knew about originally, but it was the drummer that I was working with that was way into Carmine. And I have to credit him for so much of the music that ended up influencing me as a, as a player and as a musician later on because it was it was through the introduction of you know bands vanilla fudge was was my first exposure to to tim um and then also the, the, i remember this this drummer jazz i didn't i didn't know what jazz was i i thought 
you know, as a young punk, you know, the, the best bass player was the one that could play the fastest and got the most girls, you know, or whatever. It's just, I didn't know. I didn't have, I didn't have a mentor back then. But my music that I was listening to and influenced by, that became kind of my mentor. And he was, my drummer buddy also introduced me to Billy Cobham. And then I was hip to like Baron Brown and these players I'd never heard of before. And just, um, you know, getting that sort of exposure. But, but Vanilla Fudge was in the pool of the bands that was like, I dove into this, I dove into this pool of, of new opportunity and just new sounds. And it was, it was part of all of what I was kind of attracted to at the time, which was, I don't know how else to describe, except it was, you know, aggressive, forward moving, assertive kind of playing. Um, I never, you know, unfortunately I never got to meet Tim, but I feel like I got to know a little of, about his personality that it's so cool to hear y'all talk about. I feel like I got to pick up a little bit of that from, from his playing. It's, it's funny how people's personalities will kind of come across in their, in their playing styles, you know, and, and um, you know, how like, you know, people's dogs, they look like them. I feel like people's playing look, you know, looks and sounds like them too, when it comes to, to personality. But um, I, I just, I remember, I remember thinking about the, the tone, the sound being unique. Um, Again, that forward move, that that commanding is the word I think of. You know, when it when it comes to to his playing, and um, and again, like at the time when I was listening to 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 them and Rush and these other and these other bands that that had um, bass bass sounds, bass bass lines that were really a, a, a attractive to me. That I was fortunate because that was a part of the of, of that picture in my upbringing. I was I was a late bloomer and really learning who who Tim was. It wasn't years late until years later that I, I knew about some of the other bands that he played with, some of the other musicians that he had played with. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like I said, I wish I wish I could have met him at, at some point. I've been lucky to meet a lot of my a lot of my heroes and influences in my lifetime, and and it would have been awesome to meet him but but the music was his his music and his playing was absolutely an influence in my formative years as, as a player really just amazing stuff well um i want to get back with you on uh on what you were talking about adam in a moment because i do want to talk about uh, one of your tracks on your latest album which is a tribute to a, another great great mentor of many of us you know and also, I would like to talk to Will about um, his perspective on another mentor, Chuck Loeb, in a minute. But let me ask Steve, um, what were really some of your first influences? I mean, obviously, you knew who Tim was, you know, but even when in your younger days, who were some of the people that really laid the foundation for you to want to play bass? Were they electric players? Were they upright players? Who were they? Well, all over the all over the map because, like I said, there were there there wasn't a lot of pop music starting. Uh, you know, I my family all musicians, right? So there was a a, a big thing going on in the family. My uncle uh, Dave was a, a classical uh, pianist, concertizing pianist. My uh, uh, my dad played a little bit of piano. My older brother played keyboards. We were all from this crazy school that at a university where we had to be music majors starting at about five years old. And so we all had to play a lot of instruments at once. So a style of music, my mom uh, was uh, a huge uh, R&B fan. 
And so I was listening to a lot of R&B and my dad loved classical music. And so I was listening to a lot of that and jazz. I started to get involved in, uh, you know, crazy, uh, oh, I don't know, um, stuff like Sarah Vaughan I listened to and I began to say, why does this music work? So for me, it was a combination of, of I love the bass and I love the bass. You know, I hate to say this, but I like the bass because uh, to me, the bass meant uh, uh, control. You know, I a bass player drives everything in terms of uh, it, from what I, I see. Uh, harmony, uh, the way the, the bass players to me is always sort of driving everything. And I liked it because uh, there were no uh, uh, restrictions to what you did. You could you could be back in a, in a pocket and play really well. You could stand up, play melodies. You could stand up and do anything. And there was just no, at least at that time in the late 60s, there was kind of no... Um, there was no, the way I saw it, there was no sort of dogma. There were no restrictions to what you could do. And for me, that was really interesting. So uh, obviously, Tim, uh, I liked, uh, uh, I was already playing classical music at the time. So I loved Cream because of that, because I saw Cream as being uh, basically uh, chamber music. To me, that, that said, this is chamber music. This is where you have people that are interacting. They're handing off melodies. They're handing off pieces of the tune. Uh, there's no one person really necessarily driving anything specific. So I like that. Uh, I, uh, I, was, uh, I, I was playing in my uh, jazz band at my college then when I was like 11 or 12. So I was listening to stuff like, uh, I was listening to stuff like uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears, which I liked a lot. I liked, uh, uh, you know, I liked har uh, harmonically where they were going, the structure of the tunes, how it was working. So it was a combination. I saw uh, Cream as an improvising band more than anything else. That's, I kind of think that's why I liked uh, 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 all of Beck Bogart and uh, Peace. That's why I liked uh, Cactus. That's why I liked uh, uh, Vanilla Fudge because I saw all that as uh, uh, in, in a way almost improvising music, but yet there was still a structure. So to me, that was like freedom. There's a structure, there's there's something happening, but yet there's a lot of freedom in doing that, plus the people standing up in front. So, oh, uh, and so moving forward, a lot of uh, funk and R&B, you know, obviously uh, James Brown, um, I was listening to a crazy, uh, uh, you know, I liked horn bands, uh, I liked uh, uh, funk and R&B. I started to like rock and roll when it got more interesting, uh, believe it or not. At the time, I was not a big, I admired uh, McCartney, but I was not a big McCartney fan. I just felt like he was, um, you know, I liked the fact that he was kind of, you know, he's not playing roots and fifths. He's doing different things. And I'm not sure being honest, I understood exactly what he was doing at the time, but I was focused more about the music. I don't know if I'm making a good point here, but, uh, to me, it was about bass playing because uh, I like the idiom, or it was about what was happening in song structure and uh, writing music. I was already writing music when I was 11 or 12. So to me, uh, it was a combination of, gee, if it takes me out of the picture of a player, what can it appeal to me as a songwriter or a song? Big time. If I'm going to go with something that is based on a, a composition or writing, then I'm willing to wear that hat. So you remember from from BIT that I was constantly saying that uh, you've got to wear a bunch of hats all the time. So this is early on. You've got to be a great player. 
you got to be, be able to show up and play the gig. You have to be able, in my opinion, you have to be able to write music. You have to be able to stand up and be a, uh, uh, a musical director if you need to. You've got to be able to uh, accompany. I believe that everybody should at least have what I call class piano chops. You got to be able to sit down and accompany yourself or someone else. You also be, you have to have a studio smarts. You have to be able to sit and be able to walk in and produce at the same time if you need to. So to me, being a musician, and, and that was the big thing, was to being able to wear all these hats at the same time. Because that's where, that's where the future wa was for any musician, not just bass players. You probably remember, I talked a lot about that. You've got to be so flexible. You can't be in, sitting behind in a little, a little pocket in a little... Uh, world by yourself. You just got to be able to stand up, sing, play, write music, produce, all of that stuff, all at the same time. So uh, that was my point. But yeah, uh, R&B, rock and roll that was interesting. I liked a lot of funk. I was uh, listening to, to Ray Brown, who I loved quite a bit. I got very, very much interested uh, when I was playing a lot of upright jazz. I became a, a, a huge Eddie Gomez uh, aficionado because I loved the fact that he was very, very busy, but yet had very, very obvious lines. Stanley Clark, I heard Stanley play up at the uh, Red Herring in, in uh, uh, Champaign-Urbana when I was about 14 or 15. I believe it was pre, I think it was Bill Connors playing guitar and Chick. And it was one of those uh, strange times when uh, uh, Chick didn't always have the same band at, at the time, but it was, it was Stanley Clark, very impressed by that. Being, being very creative, being able to be very, very busy, but very simple at the same time. I liked all of that. So in six minutes and 58 seconds, that's the answer to your question. Let me tell you <laughs> something. I, I've got to tell you all. A, a, I've got two stories to tell you. The first story is I have not seen or heard of this man since 1980. When somebody on Facebook told me that Steve was still around playing bass, I had to seek him out because one of my memories and just listening to how he speaks and how his brain functions just set me back. I'm 18, I'm in the class, I'm listening to this guy, curls and a mustache, he looked like Doug Henning at the magic show, man. I mean, I was like, who is this dude? And I, he actually was really extremely intimidating to me. And um, I remember, I, Steve, this haunts me to this day, but I'm going to come clean with you now in front of everybody. I remember saying one of the dumbest things you could say to anybody in the world, especially music. Now, give me a little bit of a break, because remember, I'm 18. I'm a heavy metalhead. I'm arrogant. I'm from New York. I don't care if I can't play. I know I look cool. I, got, I know I got a great bass. I know I can get chicks. Whatever the hell, I, that was my priority. My priority was not music and theory. My priority was not being um, the great, you know, a, a great musician at that time. So I remember Steve telling me exactly what he just said to all of us right now. And my reply to him was, you know what? Uh, clubs are for musicians like you. And Madison Square Garden is for musicians like me. That's what I told him. Oh, man. 
You know what, Steve? I've never played Madison Square Garden, but I will pat myself on the back that I played my largest gig, which was 30,000 30, plus with Roberta Flagg. So I, can't, I, I beat the attendance record for Madison Square Garden, but I've never made that dream come true. But <laughs> Steve, I'm coming clean. I'm confessing. This is base confessions. I'm coming clean right now because that has stuck with me to this day. Every time I have a problem with either reading or, or concentrating on something or trying to push myself into another level um, in the music language landscape, I hear your voice, man. <laughs> it's like haunting me. <laughs> well, the good news is there's enough room for all of that. And that's the thing is, because when you just distill it all, you realize that there is so much room out there and there's so much room to, to change if you want or do something else. It's like, you know, it's like going to uh, New York's full of great restaurants. You don't have to, you have your favorite, but you can always go to, to another one, open the door and say, okay, right now today, this is my favorite. So that's the great thing about it. There is no right or wrong or this and that. It's just getting out and doing it and making it happen. Thank God you feel that way. Thank God we all feel that way. Now, um, I want to talk to Will about something. I was turned on to one of his albums. I think it was, uh, I have my notes somewhere. I forgot what, what year did this come out. This was a 2013 release, Love, Gratitude, and Other Distractions, which um, went to number one in Japan, which is a big deal, uh, big, big deal, especially if you're playing in Japan, I've never had the uh, the experience of playing in Japan. It's on my bucket list. You but were. but one of the tracks on that album, which I'm featuring in a radio show that I'm kind of hosting for for another radio station, uh, Jazz City Radio, and I'm I'm featuring featuring that song along with another song by Adam Nitti, um, because it's a song that I believe is on the level of Portrait of Tracy, which in my opinion oh, is. Yeah. I'm sorry. Hey man, I'm sorry, man, you gotta hear this. You gotta There's hear this. To here. <laughs> That's nothing to you see You gotta here. hear this, Will. You have to hear this. Oh, please. I think, over the top. I think all of us can agree that when we heard Portrait of Tracy for the very first time and found out that it was performed on an electric bass even though it sounded like a Fender Rhodes, we were all blown away as bass players. There's no doubt we were all blown away. So when I heard your rendition- Even if of, this was this morning you're talking about hearing that, that's the reaction that I still get when I hear that track. Exactly. He's exactly. still kicking everybody's ass, come on. Exactly. He's still kicking. He's been dead for 35, 58 years. He's still <laughs> yes. kicking everybody's Yes, and, and and the magic, <laughs> the magic of your track smile, also the magic of Portrait of Tracy to me as a bass player is uh, my first thing I think of myself as a composer. You know, I, I I'm a writer, soloist, eh, writer definitely, right? So I hear smile, and I'm going, okay, okay, this is okay. This is at first I thought it was kind of cool. But then I, I'm in more into the track and I start hearing those beautiful, and I didn't know at the time who provided that background, guitar, those guitar swells 
why don't you tell us all here, especially mm -hmm. those who, who are familiar with the track, a little bit about how Chuck Loeb inspired you. And, and even you even said something to me, which I thought was really strange. You said there would be no Will Lee without Chuck Loeb. So Chuck Loeb it would go under the, uh, the description of a mentor, wouldn't he? At least, yeah. He, well, Chuck Loeb was one of these musicians who had such a, a wide, a vast vocabulary of music that in that Hiram Bullock kind of way, which is another guy that I'd like to point out because if you get, if you get to be surrounded by, by people that are that much more happening than yourself, that's, that's where you want to be, you know? You really want to be surrounded by people that are better than yourself if you can get away with it. And that's what I've done a lot of uh, in my life. And in the case of Hiram Bullock, Hiram, this is, I'm diverting, I'm getting off on a diversion for a second, but it all relates to the same thing. Hiram was a guy who, if you're on his, if, if you're on a stage with Hiram Bullock and say it's a drummer for the groove, and you for the for the bass and Hiram for kind of everything else. It's you know running the show, uh, helping helping it go where it's going to go. You know he a guy like him is like an amazing person to be in a trio with. You know because a trio can it's like an arrow, right? It just they can just fly in space like like that thing in the middle of the asteroids game. <laughs> that, that thing it, it can just it can just go anywhere really easily and move quickly through space. Um, Hiram had the kind of, uh, Hiram, I, used to, I said this at his eulogy, Hiram was, uh, he's the only black guy I ever knew that could, that knew the entire Crosby, Stills and Nash songbook, the entire James Taylor songbook, the entire Steely Dan songbook, and every jazz, every jazz standard every lyric to every jazz standard, could sit at a piano and just play any of these things with all the lyrics, blah, blah, blah. You know, he was one of these genius guys, right? So you could be on stage with a guy like him. And if you're in, in improvisation mode, you know, which you, you, you want to be, if you can get away with it, uh, that's where the 35 bucks comes in. It's a bitter end with Osmo. <laughs> Hope you still live with your parents. Um, <laughs> You can, uh, you can, uh, you can just okay. So you're playing a song, right? <clears throat> you're playing along, and you think you're doing a, you're doing fine, and then you hit a wrong note. And rather than having to lose sleep for the rest of your life, a guy like Hiram Bullock or Chuck Loeb has the ability to hear that and place it in a in a brand new chord in a way that you can never imagine in a million years, and create something brand new with it, right? And take it, take your little thing, and give it credibility. Take it to the bank, you know. And Chuck, Chuck Loeb, when when I sat down and I played in my little arrangement, you know, it's a very simple. The smile melody is, is pretty simple. It's kind of scalar; it just kind of goes up and down. Right, everything's kind of connected right next to each other. On the bass, there's a few harmonics which are really close together. And and for me, I'm I'm sure Jocko would have found a more efficient place to play them, but I play them like right kind of on you know low on the on the fourth fret of the fifth fret of the of the g string you know in, in that area and then and then on down 
on down the fingerboard. You know, they're all really close together. If you, you've got half steps, you know, a couple of whole steps in there. So you can play a melody like that. And, and I kind of, you know, in between takes in the studios, I, I sort of figured out this melody with harmonics. So blah, blah, blah. And some of the things kind of have an off harmony to them that I hear that I wouldn't expect anybody else to hear, but a guy like Chuck Loeb would hear that. And he would get it right away. And, you know, when you got, have guys like with ears that are that gigantic, they think you're a good musician because they hear stuff in you that not even you hear. So then at that point, you just have to look back at them and go, yeah, man, I'm bad. Yeah, I meant that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know exactly what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, uh, if you let that happen, it will turn into something. You know, a guy like a really good musician will turn it into something. And so Chuck Loeb came in and I showed him my little invention, my little thing, you know, with the harmonics kind of, kind of dictating a chord that he translated into a chord that he wanted it to be, which was really way more than I could have dreamed of having it be. And then, so the two of us sat face to face in a room and he plugged into his little, you know, line six M13 pedal board, which he had completely command of. He had designed all his beautiful delays and stuff, you know, that suited his style of, of that kind of ballad playing. And, you know, he had done his homework in that area. He knew his way around, he knew exactly what to do. We sat facing each other and just played it live. And that's what you hear on the record. It's magical. It is. It's, it's truly magical. Now, I'm going to ask Adam about his latest album. And there's a track on his album, The World is Loud. And the track is titled The Professor. And it, it is a tribute to one of my, definitely one of my favorite drummers. And we all have favorite drummers. I mean, looking back at at, at your uh, repertoire, Will, I mean, you played with some great players, great drummers. I think all of us, uh, you know what, when I think back about my repertoire, yeah, I have some great drummers too in my life, but, but Adam uh, dedicated this track to uh, the late, great Neil Peart. Um, and, it's phenomenal. I'm going to be highlighting this track on my radio show. Uh, it is titled The Professor. Could you give us some background on this, Adam, please? Absolutely. Um, and man, first of all, thank you so much for even, uh, I didn't know you were going to be putting that on a radio show thing. That's, that's amazing. Thank you. I'm humbled. Um, this, so, so my new record is, um, as you know, it's, it's in a really different direction than my prior stuff, which my prior five or more like, you know, fusion albums, jazz, funk, rock, fusion, uh, whatever you want, whatever you want to call that stuff. And, you know, definitely instrumentally based with very few exceptions. And so this, this latest record that I just did is, um, I mean, it's a full on rock album and I'm, I'm singing on it and playing most of the rhythm guitars and, and stuff like that. So it, the evolution of this record started off in a completely different trajectory. So, um, I just really, you know, my, my roots are, even though I, I guess most of my listeners would kind of identify me as like from a, um, 
compositional library coming more from a fusion direction. You know, my roots were not in that. Um, when I started playing bass uh, in the very beginning of the 80s, you know, it's back then what was really influencing me was, you know, the same stuff that was influencing the people that were in my, my little garage band with that drummer I mentioned that was, you know, such a, such a great help to, you know, broaden my horizons. But, um, you know, I was, I, for me, it was like bands like Yes and, and, and Rush and Kansas and um, Led Zeppelin and, and any, any of the bands that were, you know, more considered to be sort of like in that, in that prog vein back then is kind of what was catching, catching my ear. And I had a classical background. My, my parents started me on classical piano when I was eight years old. And um, it's, it's, I just, I showed a lot of interest in music from the, from as far back as, as they could remember. And, and my mother's side of the family was very musical. And my grandfather was a, a classical violinist and classical pianist and had, had some, you know, minor regional success. And so that, that was kind of in my blood already. But the, the classical thing for me after four or five years of that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, almost a teenager and it's like, I, I'm not listening to classical music for enjoyment. That's in my piano repertoire that I'm responsible for learning, but I didn't have this, this, you know, love for it really. And, and I started kind of pushing back uh, against my parents. Eh, I don't want to take classical piano anymore. You know, I want to, I want to play rock music or whatever. My friends are playing rock music and, and, uh, God bless my parents because they they sort of recognized that they weren't going to be able to just make me all of a sudden decide, oh, I'll, I'll just abandon, you know, the rock music. Thing. I'm not going to stick with classical and just do this and nothing else. They they kind of recognized that that was a that was going to be a losing battle. So so in their uh, in their grace and wisdom, they decided to um, help me out with a bit of a compromise. And I my the thing I was really pushing on is like, hey, I want to. I want to get a synthesizer because I hear a synthesizer and you know in the music of, of you know Rush or Journey whoever it was that I was listening to at, at the time and so they bought me this Chord Poly 61 and so that that was my uh, that was my foray into the the band life so I was you know I was, I was playing that trying to copy these these parts and I'll tell this really quickly because it ultimately kind of takes us back to, to this whole mentorship concept you're talking about with the influence in this in this song. Um, the uh, the bass player decided he wanted to play rhythm guitar one day and, and so we didn't have a bass player and so I volunteered to play, he lent it to me. And that's what started my, my bass playing stuff. And so at the beginning, what I was doing was I, I was still, still playing my, my keyboard stuff, but I was beginning to learn how to play bass as well. So, and I just based on my own survival and being able to 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 hold sort of multiple roles in, in the band, I was I was teaching myself how to like tap notes on the fingerboard and then hold chords down and or, or keyboard pads with the with the right hand. So it kind of over time it became like this little bit of a shtick. Well, when I heard Getty Lee play and heard the bass lines, I was like, oh man, I want to I want to play this stuff. And then when I when I found out that he was also doing the keyboards, well, that was all over then. I was like, oh, this is my, this is my role model right now because it's taking, you know, every bit of my, my musical instrument history and it's bridging them together. And it's, it's music that sounds challenging and, and it's, you know, it's not just pop stuff. And, 
you know, it was, it was, it was really engaging. And, and so that, that captured me. And that was, that was my, man, that, that was it for me for a while. I just wanted to, to learn how to play those lines and keyboard parts and put them all together. So anyways, fast forward to, to now, um, when I, when I was writing for this record, I knew I wanted to move in a different direction. And I was like, you know, I want to be, I want to tip the hat to the roots, you know, for me, which, which was this rock music, you know, that's, that's where I kind of, that's where I first evolved from, you know, once the classical stuff had kind of worn off. And, um, and I knew that if I just kind of let the songs grow into what they, they naturally should be, there was, you know, couldn't help but probably have, you know, the, those influences sort of, sort of rise to the surface again. And so this, this particular tune that you're referring to, the, the professor, when I started working on that song, Neil was still with us. And um, I didn't have any, didn't have any, you know, plans of making it a tribute. But um, during the, during the creation of, of the album, you know, we lost him last year. And uh, I just, it was one of those things, like a bolt of lightning just kind of shot through because this out of every song on the record, it sounds the most influenced by, by Rush or bands of that, you know, of that sort of genre or, or that, that style. And I just, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was, when, when Neil passed, I was like, man, this, this has got to, I got to, they got to make this, this a tribute to him. And that's, that's really the story behind the song. And, and um, um, it's, it's really special for me because of, first of all, like the connection to, to my, to my younger, less experienced self, you know, just coming up as a, as a musician connection to the music that I, that just made me excited. I mean, how excited are you when you first start playing music and, and start playing an instrument? I mean, there's, there's nothing else you think about and it. And uh, that mindset for me, it was, it was so precious and so sacred to try and, you know, restore, cause you know, let's face it in a, in a, in a, in a COVID world, it's, you know, you gotta, sometimes you gotta work a little harder to find the passion or keep the flame burning, you know? Mm -hmm. And this was a, this was a really exciting way for me to kind of, you know, celebrate the, the influence of the past and sort of share it with the, with the present. And, you know, hopefully it connects with, with people out there who have a, who have a similar background, but, but yeah, man, I appreciate you asking about it and, and, and uh, playing it on your program. It's going to stand out like a sore thumb because uh, the, the listening audience in um, Minneapolis for Jazz City are all smooth jazz heads. So. Oh, my gosh. You sure you want to do that? I do. <laughs> I do. I want to shake them up. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, look, guys, I, I want to close with saying uh, I'm very thankful that you all made it today with me. Uh, I, I appreciate, I know we can go on for a long time. I wanted to try to keep this close to an hour and we are, we're definitely coming up to that time. Um, I will have to, I would, I'd like to share one story about Tim before we, uh, we leave each other. And that is um, the backstory of this is I had a beautiful Gibson LS9 fretless ripper, 1977 and a Fender Precision 1977 that was sold to me by the one and only Jack Sony. And if you don't know who Jack Sony is, do your research on Dire Straits because Jack Sony used to work on 48th Street. He started his gig at Alex Axe and then he moved in across the street with Rudy's music shop. 
And this was a guy who played Kenny's Castaway and who had all these different bands. And if you could try to remember now, uh, putting you back in time, I'm 14 years old. I just, I mean, literally playing bass for maybe one year. And I had a Gibson Fretless Ripper. Um, and so... The perfect starter instrument. Perfect starter instrument. Yeah. So um, I, I get the new, you know, I, I do the thing that I'm supposed to do as far as um, passing whatever stuff I have to pass to get admitted to Base Institute of Technology, right? But this is 1979. I've already been taking lessons now with Ken Smith for about six months. So... I'm, I'm actually playing his very first prototype Ken Smith bass. I, I'm 17 years old, right? But still, reading F. Samandel was getting on my nerves. I, I, I driving me insane. I, I was having a rough time. So I, you know, I, I told my dad. I said, "Hey, uh, would you consider financing me going to music school in Hollywood, California?" and my father was not a fan of my music. He, he wanted me to be a cartoonist and an animator. And that was the school that I was in at the time, High School of Art and Design, which my major was cartooning and animation. And uh, he really wanted me not to play music, but he agreed if I cut my hair, he'll pay for the, for the, uh, for the tuition. So I land up in Hollywood. I had to, what I did the day before I left to Hollywood I was on 48th Street and I found this base. You mentioned Kansas, Adam. What, when I walked into the store on 48th Street, I forgot the name of the store. I think it was called We Buy Guitars. Uh, I believe his name was Dave King, the bass player for Kansas. He was playing this Canadian bass I've never seen before called Odyssey. I don't know if you remember this bass, but it was the first time that I saw and heard Bartolini pickups had a one Bartolini high A, right? And I fell in love with this bass. So I went to the guy on the counter and I said, look, I'm going to Hollywood tomorrow. I want to go to Hollywood with a new with a new bass. Can you please? I've got a Gibson Ripper mint condition. I got a Fender P. Can I trade them for this bass? And they were like, well, if you bring $200 cash, we'll let you trade these two basses and you can get this brand new Canadian bass Odyssey, right? So I go home, take the BMT to Brooklyn, get my bases, get my 200 cash, go right back into 48th Street, go to the guy behind the counter. Oh, I'm sorry, man. My boss said you need another $200. And I'm like talking to him, like literally crying, going, no, you can't do this. You don't understand. I can't take these two bases on a freaking plane with me. Please, please just do the deal. It wouldn't do the deal. So I'm walking up 48th Street, frustrated as hell. I didn't want to go to BIT with either my Gibson Ripper or my Fender P. So I walk into Sam Ash, and there, I look up, and there is a sea of Kramer, brand new Kramer aluminum bases. Don't know, no, I don't know anything about Kramer. I know they're ugly looking. That much I could say, but I don't know much about Kramer bases. So the salesman says to me, you know, these are one of the first instruments that have um, onboard preamp. You got a 12 volt, 12 volt battery compartment. It boosts your sound. They're strung up with round wounds. 
So I picked up this bass, DMZ, DMZ 4001, and I did the deal. I did the deal, 200, two bases, got a Kramer. And so now I'm at BIT, fast forward, BIT. Fish out of water because I'm from Brooklyn and I don't know anybody in Hollywood. And I'm just getting to know all of these cohorts of mine. They're all from different places in America. Some of them are real knuckleheads, man. I got to tell you, some of them are. Mm. So they start, you know, uh, start talking to me and all that. And they're looking at my Kramer. And then I have to do a live performance thing, which I have to stand up in front of the class and solo over chord changes or play something, play blues, whatever, right? And all of a sudden, the whole class starts listening to LAX coming from my pickups. I, I got air traffic control coming from my pickups in the room, right? You know, crowd whatever, right? I'm so embarrassed, man. That's your solo. That's my st- <laughs> That's my solo. Jimi Hendrix, that'd be part of the solo. <laughs> I meant to be <laughs> So these guys rib me for like weeks. They just like, I, I, whatever cool points I had, they're gone. Until, <laughs> until the day Tim Bogert comes to BIT. Tim Bogert comes to BIT with his Kramer DMZ 4001 bass. Oh. Yes, yes. And he slaps and funks like I've never heard before. You got to try to remember that. I'm, this is 1979, Adam. 1979, there are only a couple of really great slap players at that time. I mean, you know, you you had fusion guys that were slapping, of course, but guys that were known for slapping, like Lewis Johnson was one of them who was known for slapping, you know. I mean, Tim Boger, to me, was not known for slapping. I knew him only from Vanilla Fudge. I knew him from the Ed Sullivan show. I knew him, slap, you know, doing his dance and boogaloo dance that Will was talking about, you know. But I didn't really know that this guy could slap. And this guy was a slap monster. Wow. Right, Steve? Steve, he was he was pretty up there, man, as far as his yeah. technique. So he blows everybody away. All of these knuckleheads, man, my, my, my student faculty and everybody who was giving me a hard time. And after that moment, I went up to Tim. I was just so happy. I even took a photograph of him. I have it somewhere. Uh, but um, those kind of moments, is, they really that's what really keeps you going, man. I mean, those are the kind of moments that when you think to yourself, I'm not good enough, or I get you're frustrated, or you're not connecting with what you hear in your heart and your, your mind, and it's not coming out through your fingers, and you're wondering why, you know? It's really moments like that. And I wanted to close the show with that is kind of why I brought you guys together today. Uh, Tim Bogert, I, I, I got to come clean. I don't know all his repertoire. I know a couple of his solos, his live stuff. But um, it was that moment in time that changed my life. And uh, great, man. You know, I, if, if any of us go back and hear some, some Tim Bogert right now, I'm sure we all be very inspired, man. Because he's he's got a lot going on, you know. He yeah. had a lot going on. Man. Yeah. He was so he was so pure in a way, you know, because he just let the music fly. 
Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, tying in with with what Will just said, and also Steve was, I really enjoyed Steve what, what your 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 story about about Tim at the beginning. But um, I it's it's come into my mind now what what I what it was that that kind of stuck out stuck out for me because um, I'm like you, Christian. You know, I don't know I don't know the whole repertoire. I don't know the discography, the entire thing. I know what what I was listening to was was rocking my world. But he is an example of, of what, what I would consider to be a, what I call a stylist. You know, somebody, when they play, you immediately know who it is, you know, whether it's through the, um, you know, whether it's through a, you know, close your eyes, you, you hear their sound, you, you hear their lines, you know, that, that type of thing. It just speaks to you in that almost intangible way. Or if you if you're sitting there watching them or you know you're about to hear something from them and it just kind of it, it meets your expectation you know in the, in the in the purest sense and um you know all the all the players that i that i love and 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 follow and, and appreciate like present company uh, of course has that has that stylist quality to them it's it's when I don't think you can have that until you really kind of find your true identity, both as a, as a musician and also as a person. And, and um, I don't know that, that kind of sticks out for me when I think about that. Cool. Cool. Steve, do you have uh, something that we don't know about in the works? I mean, like I said, this is blowing my mind because I haven't spoken to you in how many years was be at 1980. What is that? 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. So What's happening in your landscape? Musically? Well, I do. I'm not playing as much as uh, I used to. Uh, I would say since about the early 90s, I've had some real serious problems with my hearing. And uh, it is, it's, uh, I think since then, I pretty much don't do anything without earplugs in because it's, uh, it's also hearing in tinnitus. And I can tell you, you don't want those, that combo is a bad one, right? Yeah, so, yeah. What I'm doing now is I have a friend, David Benskoik. He's out there. I don't even know where you go find him. I, we've probably done six or seven CDs now that have all been, uh, you know, you if you define a CD now as making enough money that it that that uh, it paid the expenses and maybe something else, well, then that's a huge success. So we've done like six or seven CDs now, and uh, they're all sort of kind of hybrid uh, uh Oh, I'd say basically not bop exactly, but small uh, trio and quartet stuff uh, that we do, which is kind of a hybrid of, of stuff that you might say is, is bop or swing or a little extra stuff involved. That's kind of what I've been doing. I play a lot in my church uh, uh, now, and I enjoy doing that because they let me just kind of do whatever I want to, which is a lot of freedom. Uh, I do still play a lot of classical music now. I mean, I came out to Tempe at, to ASU to get my master's in double bass because my background was even before. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if you remember me bringing the uh, uh, the double bass in and playing out of some Mandel book in class, which I did two or three times because I wanted to rock your world, and I did that uh, on and off. And uh, I still do a lot of uh, small uh, chamber music stuff here and a lot of symphony. I'm in the Symphony of the Southwest. My wife is the concert master of the Arizona Opera. I play in the Phoenix Symphony sometimes. And so between all that stuff and trying to look after my hearing, it's, it's been fun. But mostly that, I have a lot of uh, stuff I've written. It's in the background. I've always been writing stuff. So it's easy for me to just sit down 
and just do something instantly. There's a track on the new CD with David that, uh, uh, believe it or not, a lot of bass players, a lot of uh, writers have told me this. I actually wrote in the car because I discovered early on that the best place for me to write music, believe it or not, is in the car, number one. And number two, taking me off the instrument. A lot of times now, if I write stuff, I get completely away from the instrument. I just try to uh, listen to what I'm doing and then transcribe what I'm doing before I pick something up you know, on the instrument and have it go that direction. So I'm kind of in that mode, but, but for the one minute and 30 second answer, that's kind of what I'm doing. Steve, you still intimidate the living bejesus out of me. <laughs> telling you, I am telling you, man. I mean, no doubt about it. Um, what about you, Will? I know that uh, I think you've done a, you've had a couple releases. Just finished an album with a band that we have with Keith Carlock and Jeff Babco and Jeff Coffin, called and guitarist Near Felder called Band of Other Brothers, Boob. <laughs> and um, I, I was lucky enough to get Stanley Clark to play a solo on one of my tunes. All right, I awesome. The, I wrote the song, and I, and I'm. And I wrote this little solo section that was like ice cream changes for a bass player to solo over. Mm -hmm. Just, oh yeah, and I was grooving. I'm, good. I'm thinking to myself, I gotta channel my inner Stanley Clark to this. This is like the perfect, wait a minute. I know Stanley Clark, I don't have to do this. <laughs> I called Stanley and luckily it's so sweet, man. He, he liked the tune and he said, yeah. And this, this new album is gonna have a, a really cute, a cool Stanley solo where he goes from Arco to Pitts first half of Arco and then he switches over to Pitts and it's really kind of beautiful because I don't play any upright. I really, I'm the worst. I mean, if anybody ever sees me with an upright, ask me, please don't tell anybody. <laughs> I like to leave it to the pros, the guys that really know what they're doing. Thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for your memories of Tim and of course, all your personal stories and, and thank you for not giving up on music and continuing to keep on going no matter what is put in front of us right thank you you know thank okay you. guys take care thank you bye-bye see you guys bye -bye. thank you appreciate it so much bye-bye yeah, if you enjoyed this educational music program please subscribe to we sing the bass electric on your favorite podcast platform we would love your feedback email us at we sing the bass electric at gmail.com for bonus material and a chance to win merchandise such as autographed CDs and more, subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our mailing list at WeSingTheBassElectric.com. As always, thank you for your support. And please buy music from these spotlighted artists. It makes a difference.